Every time we come to this Sunday, I think of the collect that Father Emerson sang at the beginning of the Mass. O God, for without Thee we are not able to please Thee. Mercifully grant that Your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts was the prayer that Father Urban Tigner Holmes III said every day that he opened class at Neshota House when I was there as a seminarian. So uh, that was, it just reminds me of Terry Holmes and all the stuff, the influence that he had. Terry Holmes was six foot eight and often believed that his opinions were of the same stature as his physical height. <laughs> But he was a very influential part of the Episcopal Church for a long time before he died in 1980. Reading the readings for this Sunday from Proverbs, from the Epistle of James, and from the Gospel, three questions occurred to me this week as I was preparing my sermon. The first is, uh, are all the things that happen to us the result of our own actions. Do we bear responsibility for all of the things that happen? The second question is, what is our responsibility as Christian people with regard to the custody of speech? And the third question is, what does it mean when we use the term or you listen to the Savior say, if you want to be my disciple or follow me, you must take up your cross? How do we understand what that means? You know, it comes up a fair amount in the Christian church and the cross is a central, if not the central symbol of our faith tradition, much to the, the uh, annoyance of many. So what does it mean to take up our cross and how do we understand it? And maybe more to the point, how is it described in Mark's gospel that might help us figure something out about taking up our cross? Last week I mentioned that we uh, don't often read from the book of Proverbs and uh, it's nice to have the opportunity to preach about the book of Proverbs. I think we'll read at least one more week from the book of Proverbs uh, moving forward in this cycle. Remember I said to you that the book of Proverbs is the oldest piece of wisdom literature in what Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And it in the tradition has been attributed to King Solomon as the author. So I thought this week I'd, I'd put a little more, a finer point on wisdom literature. So I went to Wikipedia with all of its uh, flaws, and here's what they said, not bad. Wisdom literature is the genre of literature common in the ancient Near East. It is characterized by sayings of wisdom intended to teach about divinity and about virtue. The key principle of wisdom literature is that while techniques of traditional storytelling are used, books also presume to offer insight and wisdom about nature and reality. 
And just so you know, in the Old Testament, here are the wisdom, uh, here is the wisdom literature. The book of Job, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon, Wisdom, and Sirach, which comes those from the apocryphal literature. So wisdom literature is in the Old Testament. And in many ways, it isn't specifically religious. It's more about the practical wisdom that we learn uh, as we live. Today, we have an extended discourse, not a series of proverbs or aphorisms. And wisdom is on the move out in the world. And she's moving around. Notice that it says she. Wisdom is she, both in Hebrew and Greek. What's the Greek word for wisdom? Sophia. So we hear about wisdom moving around. One of the difficulties in this reading is we, what wisdom presumes is that you and I would know what it is. Right? That we would know that you're listening to me and you're not, or you are or not heeding wisdom and a reason and common sense ought to lead you to wisdom and more to the point and towards the question that I ask, uh, if you don't, there are consequences that are going to attach to not exercising uh, wisdom. Uh, you know, some reason and common sense about how to live your life. But here's what occurred to me when I read this, because this sounds pretty direct, doesn't it? It sounds like most of the bad stuff that happens to you happens because you haven't exercised wisdom. And so there is a direct relationship to the adversity that we suffer and our actions, our ways of thinking and being and relating and so on. Is that true in every case? How are we to understand what, what that might mean? One of the things you've heard me say to you before is, well, let me start with this. When I first came to St. Luke's, moved to the Silicon Valley, it was in the middle of the flying high in April in the Silicon Valley. It was a huge amount of success and prosperity. And a lot of people came to success and prosperity very quickly and at a very early age. But one of the things I noticed that seemed to be common in the Silicon Valley amongst the group who did was uh, no interest in talking about serendipity. All the success was the result of the entrepreneurial drive, the brilliance, the persistence, the hard work of all the people who became successful. Nothing about being in the right place at the right time or even to give, be a little more generous, the right person in the right place at the right time. Right? To say that serendipity has at least something to do with our success. So that would suggest that it isn't just what we do. This is an affirmative thing to talk about, being successful. Serendipity is a thing that we're talking about, serendipitous success. 
But those of us in the helping professions and just ordinary human beings also know, but maybe don't ever think about it quite the same way, is there's something called negative serendipity. There's stuff that happens to us that occurs as the result of events that may be beyond our own control. Some of the adversity that we suffer we didn't cause. I mean, a lot of what we're going through right now in this culture in economic terms has something to do with that, doesn't it? Not all of us produce... I have invested in no credit default swaps. <laughs> in fact, it took me a long time to have even the vaguest idea, and I've got an MBA in my murky past, what in the world a credit default swap is, right? But we sure suffered because there were a whole lot of these babies that got sold and in file cabinets at Lehman Brothers and ever the other places that went south. And so here we are. Now, I'm not mentioning this because I'm trying to give us all an excuse for not being responsible and understanding that personal responsibility is at the heart of a mature spiritual life as well as a mature life, generally. But it is also true, since in Christianity we are at least to be generous with regard to things that occur to people, and to be willing in some way to extend, and to say that we wish to offer not only our emotional support, but as James said in the epistle last week, if you just say, go and do this, but don't somehow... Uh, walk the walk as well as talk the talk, which you claim about your uh, outlook is, is bogus. So there needs to be some uh, compassionate understanding of adversity, not just rooted in, well, this is the bed you made for yourself, so you need to now sleep in it. Maybe there's something else. Here's another thing. And that is that people who've spent any time in the helping professions have learned something about human behavior and also about the issue that is very much part of the therapeutic culture in which you and I find ourselves in and has been for many years. And that is the firm belief in past as prologue. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? How you were raised, where you came from, what your, your family of origin was like, that now determines how you are, what you're going to be, and how you're going to relate. Well, here's the problem. The same cause has paradoxical effects. You've heard me say this before. A child raised in a scrupulously neat family will either be a neatnik or a slob or something in between. Right? Past is not always indicative, of, and, and that's good news. Because some of us like the idea of past as prologue because we can hang our hat on some excuse for our behavior. 
or some reason why it's been difficult for us to take responsibility. But I feel kind of good that in some way I'm not tied to a relentless kind of, um, you know, karmic uh, living out of this continuous, I think in Hindu it's called samsara or something like that, where you're just endlessly going in and out of the same thing. I remember John Sanford, the Episcopal priest, the great Jungian therapist. I took a course from him on dreams about 15 years ago. Somebody said in the class, uh, do you think... Uh, what do you think about in reincarnation? Is it true? And he said, I hope not. <laughs> right? I have never asked the people I served in the parishes I've been in whether you believe in reincarnation because I'm afraid of what you're going to say to me. I agree with uh, Dr. Sanford. I hope it's not true. But the thing is, there's a certain liberation from the idea that it's all up to you, particularly if you and I believe in God's grace. So what this all means is that the reading from Proverbs is a, sort of a paradox, isn't it? You need to learn to, to, to cultivate practical wisdom about how to live and to be able to in some way share that with people in a way that is healing and life-giving. And at the same time, you don't want to think about this in terms of being so rigorous that everything you do produces all of the adversity that you face. There's serendipity that comes into play in everybody's life. And so uh, as Christian people, we need to know that and not to be so deterministic. I guess that's the right word to use about it, about the use of wisdom. In the reading from James today, He's really uh, uh, firing on all eights, and he's, he's talking about the uh, proper use of speech. This may sound a little exotic to some of you, but the Anglican Church, the, the, the branch of Christianity worldwide that comes originally from England, what we would call English Christianity, is deeply influenced by Benedictine monasticism. The Benedictine understanding of Christianity had an enormous influence in England. And just on the eve of the English Reformation, the country was lousy with Benedictines. Westminster Abbey is a Benedictine monastery. West Abbey just was in its origins, just so you know. And the reason I mention this is because Benedict's spirituality and his understanding of Christian practice is at the center of West, the Western Christian way of being in terms of spirituality. It's very practical. The Book of Common Prayer, in its origins, is deeply influenced by Benedictine spirituality. And I mention this because in the great rule, the regula, that Benedict wrote back in the 6th century, in the 500s, the founder of monasticism in the West, about how the, the brothers are to live together and what we're to do and how we're to understand Christian faith and practice. There's a whole lot in there about something we call custody. Exercising custody over your eyes, exercising custody over speech, developing the internal self-regulation that you need to 
to uh, meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you. So what James is speaking about today is a very real pastoral problem that is being faced by most of the congregations in early Christianity in that Mediterranean and ancient Near Eastern world where this letter circulated. So to, even though these individual congregations may have a, a slightly different coloration and character in terms of practice, they all are facing the, 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 the issue of the destructiveness of speech and how harmful it can be when uh, people do not have some control over speaking properly. They need to have the custody of speech. James says that the tongue is capable of things like cursing, condemnation, belittling others, verbal abuse, intimidation, slander, contempt, and perjury, lying. He says some other things too, but those are some of the main ones. You know, here's the thing. If you're anything like me, uh, if the truth be told, I think gossiping is a lot of fun. The church is full of gossip, which is why we have the epistle of James. That's one of the reasons it's been ever so. So the temptation to do this is enormous. And the temptation to use speech in this fashion is enormous. And in the pastoral realities of the church, uh, James is saying, you know what, we have discovered this is absolutely pernicious. And it seems like a small thing, but it's a big thing. Now, he's speaking about custody of speech in this sense that I've just mentioned. But he's also speaking about custody of speech in terms of cultivating the ability to be clear. He speaks at the beginning about teachers and the sort of special responsibility that teachers have to be clear in the speaking about the deep things of the Christian tradition, but also in all of the aspects of human interaction. I don't know about you, but the way I was raised and a lot of people who've reported to me, you hear a whole lot about people who are speaking to you in families in a code that you are supposed to be able to decipher and understand as opposed to being direct. You know, is there coffee? Do you want a cup of coffee? Would you like me to make a cup of coffee for you? Are you asking, is there any coffee in the house? What is it? Now you may think, oh, he's being silly because everybody knows that whoever asked it wants a cup of coffee. Well then, 40 years ago or more, Fritz Perls at the Esalen Institute down in Big Sur was sitting in a small group and a guy was sitting right next to him and turned to him and said, do you have a match? And Fritz Perl said, yes, I do. Do you want a match? 
Ask for it. Custody of speech. Not playing games with people. Not assuming they're going to be able to figure everything out. And yet at the same time, you know, when I get up, when I swing my tootsies over the gunnels in the morning, I start with a default position or labor to do it. And it is this. All of us are people of goodwill. And we mean what we say. So from my side, the obligation is to have goodwill and to think the best of other people and also to be as clear as possible as I speak and not make assumptions about what people are going to have to intuit or know or fiddle around with whatever else it is. We spend more darn time working on that in, in institutional life than it's really worth to be absolutely frank. And we could do a, with a little less of it. And I think that's something that James means when he says we need to uh, uh, exercise custody of speech. Now, the positive side of all this, the good news in this is that James also speaks in here about the good things about speech, how you can bless with your speech, how you can affirm with your speech, how you can support and hold up with your speech, how you can speak the truth to power with your speech in a way that is going to now make this a place where it's easier for us to be good. So custody of speech is important. And finally, in the gospel, Jesus. this is a famous passage. This is a, uh, one of the passages. It's also in Matthew where uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am or who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And after that, Jesus tells the disciples that his messiahship is going to be different than the way in which all of the people yearning for a messiah thought the messiah was going to be. That part of being a messiah means that he will suffer. And this is so appalling to Peter that he rebukes him for it. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Just so you know why it's important to be a student of the Bible. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter the devil. He was calling Peter the advocate. Satan means advocate in the ancient languages. The person who is now going to advocate with him or argue with him about forsaking his messianic destiny. And you heard me say to you last week that Jesus himself, the human Jesus, went through a process of development in terms of the understanding of the nature of his messiahship and his mission. And so it's probably uh, not a stretch to say if somebody has given you that, you, you don't want to hear it. And that's what he meant. But the question that I asked you all was, what does it mean to take up your cross? So here's a little more 3995 biblical stuff. In the Greek text, the, the word for cross that Jesus uses in this reading from Mark is staros. And what it means is not the gibbet 
you know, the cross that you're nailed on. It means the mark that an owner puts on his cattle. What does it say at the, in the baptismal liturgy when somebody is anointed? You are marked as Christ's own forever. So taking up your cross may have something to do with saying you are now going to bear this identifying mark that you are going to be willing to commend to other people your greatest place of safety and assurance. And the wisdom that attaches to your commitments come out of the adversity that you suffer. So the bearing of a cross of suffering has something to do with this, but it's not central necessarily. I talk about him all the time. Ed Friedman, one of my heroes, said, wisdom is the accumulated knowledge in dealing with adversity. I heard him give a lecture just before, before he died. He said, you know, I've been a licensed marriage and family therapist for 37 years. And I have heard stories from people that would make your hair stand on end. And I've come to the point where I'm really not interested anymore in all of that. What I'm more interested in is how come you're still standing? Even if you're tilting a little, right? A lot of us, we are bearing under the weight. How come you're still here? What have you learned? What wisdom can you share with others and with yourself as you move through the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you? That is a form of bearing your cross as a witness, not poor me, but understanding that in some way that kind of uh, way of seeing it is instructive. When you commend to others your greatest place of safety and assurance, you can do that without speaking in specifically religious vocabulary. You can, by your own example and witness, by your custody of speech, by the practical wisdom that you have accumulated, witness for Jesus Christ in a way that is compelling. And what the result will be is it will not only strengthen you as you reach out, it will allow people to grow into being the best human being that you can be. And our Christian anthropology tells us that we are made in God's image. And the only way you and I have of appropriating that great and powerful truth is through the commonplace activities of our own lives. We have no other way to do it. People who keep telling you that you're supposed to be moving to some cloud cuckoo land religious world where all those views and vocabulary is swapped and that's the guarantee of the fact that you're in are fooling themselves. Desmond Tutu, one of the great Christians, said the way in which you do it is you commend the deepest and best of your humanity one to another. It's an absolutely sacred undertaking.
So this week, think about uh, negative and positive serendipity. Give thanks for the former and uh, own the latter. Right? Or whatever. Yeah. You know, stuff happens. Don't beat yourself up. Take responsibility for what you're supposed to. But understand there's somehow a paradox or a tension in all of this. And I think that's why this reading is here today. See if you have the opportunity to exercise custody of speech. I have been a member of a religious community of men for 38 years, a priest associate, the Society of St. John the Evangelist. Their, their uh, mother house in the United States is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right next to the Kennedy School of Government. And uh, Father David Clayton, who was the monk, the priest who signed me up, God rest his soul, he used to say to me and to others when we'd talk or be in a conference with him when we were on retreat or something like that, He'd say, if you get into a circle of people and all of a sudden the gossip gets going and people start dishing other people and stuff, do that. You walk away. You walk away. I wish I could tell you that I have done that more than I haven't. But it's good advice. Custody of speech. And finally, remember the baptismal promise that you are marked as Christ's own forever. Amen.